Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Brokemarkle, and coming up on the program, a new monument in St. Augustine commemorates the history of commercial shrimping and shrimp boat building. St. Augustine now has six or seven shrimp boats, not many in comparison to the old days where you could walk across the San Sebastian River on boats just hopping from rail to rail. Rosenwald schools were built in the early 20th century to serve African-American students. In all, approximately one-third of black students educated in the Jim Crow South attended a Rosenwald school. And the Great Oaks Mansion in Jackson County has been identified as an endangered historic site. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. This was my grandfather's fish house, which was Salvador's, this was Versace, this was Poli. They were the first fish houses here on the water, and you can see the spur of the railroad where they would unload the, um, their shrimp to. Grace Paso is a descendant of one of the founding families of St. Augustine's shrimping industry. She's pointing out locations on a three-dimensional bronze map that is part of a monument to local shrimping history. Every fish house and every boat builder from the 1920s through the 1970s are memorialized on this map and there's a number designating what's where and then if you can read the text on the panels around you know what you're looking at. The monument on the San Sebastian River in St. Augustine is located on the boardwalk behind the new restaurant Otters on the Water. Grace Paso. From about the 1920s through the 1970s the social and economic driver for St. Augustine was shrimping. You either worked for in shrimping or you worked for the railroad. There was really no remembrance of it. And then this whole area, all of the boat building facilities became restaurants or hotels. And um, I thought this should not be a footnote, you know, in history of this town. John Versaghi is also a descendant in one of St. Augustine's founding families of the shrimping industry. When we began uh, fundraising for the monument, you know, advertising, floating the idea, uh, people came out of the woodwork Oh, my father was a shrimper, my father was a crewman, my father was a boat builder, my father uh, cut oak trees for the boat industry. It, it, it was just a sprawling network and still is, um, people remembering how prominent shrimping and boat building was up through and including the 70s. Ed Long was a shrimp boat builder in the mid-20th century and is co-author of the book Shrimp Boat City, 100 Years of Catching Shrimp and Building Boats in St. Augustine, the nation's oldest port. The four of us, uh, Grace Peso, John Versaghi, and Brendan Burke and I, we pushed that and uh, Grace was the financial head of that. She got the donations from all the shrimping families and uh, boat building families. They just came out of the woodwork and donated more than enough to build that beautiful bronze 
uh, monument. It has a map on the top showing the St. Sebastian River and it's showing 16 different docks, either boat builder or repair dock or marine supply or uh, whatever facility that uh, was there. And around it is panels saying what each thing is, you know, explaining the different ones. And uh, Chad Light, a local artist, reenactor, uh, a good guy, uh, designed the top of it. And it was cast over in Sarasota, I believe it was, uh, all bronze. And the Young Brothers uh, did the foundation with the coquina. They cut the coquina and did a beautiful job on that. So it's there permanently for everyone to see. Maritime historian Brendan Burke is co-author of the book Shrimp Boat City and helped to make the shrimping industry monument a reality. St. Augustine now has six or seven shrimp boats, not many in comparison to the old days where you could walk across the San Sebastian River on boats, just hopping from rail to rail. People used to talk about playing on boats as a kid and crossing the river on boats. Uh, boats jockeying to find a place to tie up. They had trouble parking, in essence, on the San Sebastian River. Those days are gone, the fish houses are gone. They were never meant to last, but the industry is, and that is going away, and it's something that it's critical that we remember, number one, who it was and what it was, but also try to support our local fisheries in sustaining who they are. Solicito Salvatore, later known as Mike Salvador, was a Sicilian immigrant who arrived in Fernandina in 1898 and started Florida's commercial shrimping industry. Brendan Burke. He was an architect. He was a fisherman, he was a mariner. He was an entrepreneur. And in Fernandina in the first decade of the 20th century, he assembled what I would consider to be the greatest maritime chapter in Florida's state history. It spanned from about 1900 until the 1980s. It caused well more than a billion dollars worth of fishing tonnage to be built in this state. It impacted the lives of thousands of people, directly or indirectly. 23 countries worldwide and started a food way that we now know and all participate in that in the previous century was unknown. Grace Paso. Well, the first person who became my uh, great uncle and that was um, Solicito Salvador. And um, he married my grandfather's um, baby sister, Aunt Dominica. And they had all fished in some form or another in um, Sicily. And when they got here, they were catching shrimp and liked the taste of it, although it was considered the scrap of the time. That was the bycatch. You know, they were after fish, not these things with tails and feet, big eyes and whatever else. My grandfather came over to Fernandina. John Versaghi. The person who came first was Solicito Salvador, great uncle of Grace and myself. He came first, uh, did some exploratory type fishing uh, in the Fernandina area, liked what he saw, but had a false start, restarted that business later, and uh, was joined by my grandfather, Salvatore Versaghi, and um, Antonio Poli, all related. Uh, they all joined the business and felt it, it had a future, so they uh, began developing new techniques and improving the productivity. By the early 1920s, Mike Salvador and his extended family moved their shrimping operation from Fernandina to St. Augustine. Ed Long. They were coming down the coast shrimping and the shrimping off of St. Augustine and down further toward Canaveral was so much better. And the port down here, the inlet was so much deeper and 
better. And of course there was a heavy Catholic uh, community here, being the country's oldest city, that tended to make them more inclined to move down here and live here. John Versaghi. An uncle of ours, one of uh, Salvatore Versaghi's sons, Joe Versaghi, was the, uh, the front man to go to New York and deal with the Fulton Fish Market, the big giant wholesaler up there. And um, as the ability to ship shrimp um, transit times two or three days developed with the advent of manufactured ice, the ability to ship to New York became more reliable and um, it opened up that market. Uh, they also shipped to Chicago to a similar place. Um, so uh, our Uncle Joe was the leader for the Versaghis to establish a brokerage at the Fulton Fish Market, New York. Grace Passo. My grandfather was Salvatore Versaggi, and he had five sons and two daughters. And one of his sons, Joseph, was the one who uh, went and interned for a while at the Fulton Fish Market and then became the broker for shrimp at the Fulton Fish Market. And when it was being restored, like Quincy Market was in Boston, I said to Uncle Joe, I said, maybe they'll find some old Versaggi shrimp signs. And he said, what are you, stupid? We couldn't afford a sign. And I said, well, how did people know where to buy shrimp? And he said, they knew I had it and they found me. And I thought, well, I guess that worked back then. Maritime historian Brendan Burke says that the shrimping industry in St. Augustine provided opportunities for diverse groups of people. You have African-American families that are getting into the enterprise in fish houses as labor on the boats and as owners of some of the boats. You have Greek immigrant families that are building boats mostly in Fernandina and St. Augustine, but other places as well, Tarpon Springs. You have uh, Italian families, immigrant families, that are coming either directly from Italy or trans-migrating from uh, places up north like the Fulton Fish Market up in New York, which was a critical part of the infrastructure to get rid of shrimp. You, you know, catching them is half the battle. You gotta sell them for the enterprise. So you have all these families that move to the region, but they bring something with them. And each of those talents conspired to form the modern commercial shrimping business. Ed Long grew up watching the shrimping industry thrive in St. Augustine. The boats would tie up at the San Sebastian Bridge, King Street Bridge. They would back up there to where they were ready to go out the next day and they would raft against each other all the way across the river. And as kids, we literally went from boat to boat across from one side of the San Sebastian to the other side, to the west side. And, uh, of course, the crews of the boats would chase us, but we'd outrun them. By the mid-20th century, the shrimping industry in Florida moved to Key West and more active Gulf ports. Brendan Burke. What stayed in St. Augustine, and this was really king for that area, was the ability to build the boats that supplied the fleets. And so between 1919 and 1985, I can account for about 3,500 boats that were built in town that went all over the place. And I mentioned 23 countries around the world we built boats for, we shipped them out almost by the dozen. They were rarely built on speculation. They were a well-known quantity. And during the heyday, Desco, diesel engine sales company, their motto was the sun never sets on a Desco boat. And that's a pretty bold statement to make, but it's not bragging because it was true. And you know, it sounds a lot like the sun never sets on the British empire. Uh, but it was true, and it probably in some ways still is true today. And that's a legacy that Florida has left on global fishing and global foodways. 
Florida's commercial shrimping industry peaked in the 1980s but still exists today. The new monument on the San Sebastian River in St. Augustine commemorates that heritage. This site was uh, the, the formerly Desco Marine, which was the largest shrimp boat builder in the world. They were delivering in excess of 100 hulls a year. Um, they built 2,600 plus shrimp boats uh, during their operation. Right here, the Bright Star. They built wood boats, they built fiberglass boats, they built one steel boat, um, but got a huge operation, international. Shrimp boats is a common, their sails are inside. Shrimp boats is a common, there's dancing tonight. Why don't you hurry, hurry, hurry home? Why don't you hurry, hurry, hurry home? Look here, the shrimp boats is a common, there's dancing tonight. Shrimp boats is a common, their sails are inside. Shrimp boats is a common, there's dancing tonight. Why don't you hurry, hurry, hurry home? Why don't you hurry, hurry, hurry home? Look here, the shrimp boats is a common, there's dancing tonight. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. To find out more about the shrimping industry in Florida and to see the new monument, watch episode 47 of Florida Frontiers Television at myfloridahistory.org. That's myfloridahistory.org. Up in the morning and out to school. The teacher is teaching the golden rule. American history and practical man. You study him hard and hoping to pass. Working your fingers right down to the bone. And the guy behind you won't leave you alone. Joining us now is Connie Lester, Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of the Riches Digital Archiving Project, and Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. Connie, there are still a few Rosenwald schools in Florida. Tell us about the Rosenwald schools. Coming out of the Civil War, freedmen recognized the importance of education and worked hard to acquire the rudiments of reading, writing, and arithmetic. But they faced daunting challenges, not the least of which was resistance by whites who fought to regain control over black labor, prevent black voting, and limit black access to public space. Limiting access to public education for black citizens was a critical part of that strategy. Not surprisingly, white-controlled state governments were stingy in their allocations for construction of black schools, the support of black teachers, and the purchase of textbooks and equipment. For 20 years, from 1912 to 1932, however, a partnership between northern philanthropists black rural communities and state departments of education enabled the building of more than 5,000 schools in 15 southern states, 126 of them in Florida. In all, approximately one-third of black students educated in the Jim Crow South attended a Rosenwald school. The idea for community philanthropy partnerships originated in another partnership, between Booker T. Washington, the founder and president of Tuskegee Institute, and a member of the school's board of trustees, Julius Rosenwald, the president of Sears Roebuck and Company. As Mary S. Hofschwelle noted in her 2006 book, 
the Rosenwald Schools of the American South. Quote, the Rosenwald School Building Program began with a shared conviction among all of its participants that school buildings embodied a community's commitment to the education of black children. Connie, who was Julius Rosenwald? In addition to Booker T. Washington, how was he associated with other school philanthropies? Born in 1862, the son of German-Jewish immigrants who fled persecution to make a new home in the United States, Julius Rosenwald lived by the Jewish injunction to treat every person with a sense of righteousness and fairness. As president of Sears, Rosenwald used his wealth to provide matching funds to construct black YMCAs in 24 cities, to fund fellowships for blacks in the arts and sciences, and to underwrite NAACP challenges to racial laws, in addition to the Rosenwald School Initiative. He maximized his influence by working with other philanthropies, including the Slater Fund, the Peabody Fund, General Board of Education of the Rockefeller Foundation, and the Jeans Fund. Each of these organizations was devoted to educational improvement in the South, but the Jeans Fund was the most important to Rosenwald's objectives. Anna Jeans, a Quaker, was the founder of the Negro Rural School Fund, or Jeans Fund. Endowed with a million-dollar bequest, the fund operated from 1908 into the 1960s to provide black schools in the South with qualified teachers for general education and vocational programs and to extend the school year for black students. Jean's teachers were instrumental in local fundraising activities for the construction of Rosenwald schools. County Negro Farm and Home Extension agents were also critical to the Rosenwald school efforts. Once you know what a Rosenwald school looks like, they're pretty easy to identify. How did the Rosenwald school program work? Initially, Rosenwald schools were one to four room buildings that provided schoolroom and laboratory space for rural communities. The architectural plans were designed to maximize the use of space with large windows to provide natural light. The schools, along with local churches, became the center of community life. The physical design of the schools was so distinctive that they were, as you said, immediately recognizable. Although the Rosenwald Fund provided the plans and a portion of the cost, the local communities were required to raise a sizable portion of the funds. Local and state governments also contributed to the costs. Construction did not begin on the building until all the costs had been raised and banked. For poor rural blacks, this could prove daunting, but they raised the money in various ways. Individuals donated small sums ranging from five cents to five dollars. Farmers banded together to acquire bank loans, pledging the proceeds of an acre of cropland to repay the loan. Farmers harvested and sold timber for the school fund. In addition, they pledged work on the construction of the school. Wealthy white members of nearby towns frequently contributed to the fundraising. The sacrifices made by black farmers and their families for bright new schools proved important to generations of black children who became teachers, writers, lawyers, artists, entertainers, political leaders, and activists. 
Among them was Harry T. Moore, the black martyr, who gained his first teaching experience in a Rosenwald school in Brevard County. Hofschwelly found the history of the Rosenwald schools more complex than a simple recitation of the important milestones of the program would suggest. Bound up in the progressive reforms of the era, it improved education for black children in the South and confirmed the racial hierarchy of Jim Crow. The investment in their children's education came at a higher cost for black families than it did for other contributors to the construction of the buildings, often binding their meager resources to years of loan repayment. In this interpretation, like so many progressive era reforms, the Rosenwald School simultaneously benefited rural black education and served as a mechanism to maintain the economic, political, and social hierarchy entrenched in the rural South. In the aftermath of the Civil Rights era, many Rosenwald schools were abandoned and fell into disrepair, although some continued on as rural community centers. In recent years, Rosenwald schools have reemerged as spaces to house black history museums and cultural centers, continuing their role as sites of black education. Interesting story. Thanks, Connie. You're welcome. Connie Lester is Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of the Riches Digital Archiving Project, and Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. Ring, ring goes the bell. You're cooking the lunch, ready to sell. You're lucky if you can find a seat. You're fortunate if you have time to eat. Back in the classroom, open your books. Keep it, the teacher don't know I mean she looks. Soon as three o'clock rolls around, you finally lay your burden down. Close up your books, get out of your seat. This is Florida Frontiers. Historic preservationists are hoping to save the Great Oaks Plantation home. Holly Baker has more. The Florida Trust for Historic Preservation's 11 to Save list brings attention to the most threatened historic properties and resources across Florida. The Florida Trust has identified Great Oaks in Jackson County as one of the most endangered historic properties in the state. It's been included on their annual 11 to Save list. Ennis Davis is an urban planning consultant and a trustee for the Florida Trust for Historic Preservation. He told me more about Great Oaks. Great Oaks is one of 13 sites in Jackson County, Florida that are on the National Registers list. It is an antebellum mansion that was built by Howard Bryan as a home for his mother, Elizabeth Bryan, back in 1860. The original name of this plantation was Bryan Place, and it was established by Hamilton Bryan's father, Elijah Bryan, back in the 1830s. And the major crop that would have been cultivated would have been staple cotton. It is located in Greenwood, which is a small town that only has you know, roughly 600 people today in Jackson County, which is about an hour west of Tallahassee. So this particular antebellum plantation is constructed between, or it's a plantation house, it's constructed between 1857 and 1850. 61, making it possibly one of the last antebellum plantation homes built in Florida prior to the Civil War. Except for the cherry wood stairwell, 
Great Oaks was constructed entirely of heart yellow pine. The mansion's antebellum design was meant to exhibit the wealth of its owner. What's very interesting to me is this was a plantation that had 77 enslaved souls listed in 1860 on this piece of property, and they were staying in 14 dwellings, and many of which the brick chimney still exists today. And so the enslaved that would have been on this plantation actually were the labor force that built this mansion that we're talking about today. But it is a Greek revival-style mansion, and the name Great Oaks came during the 1960s when a previous owner who purchased the property and restored the property named it after the row of Great Oaks on the entrance from the main street to the plantation home. Featuring striking architectural elements like grand columns and ornate balconies, Great Oaks included a unique antebellum palladium design, with the left and right sides of the mansion providing a mirror image of each other. The architecture of Great Oaks is basically Greek revival, but it was said that the design was inspired by an Italian architect from the 16th century known as Palladia. So, you know, another interesting thing I think about the architecture, especially when it relates back to those who would have been enslaved in developing this piece of property, is so much time in our history, we focus on the story of plantations as agricultural labor to a degree. And really, there were enslaved craftsmanships, there were brick masons, um, there were other types of artists that helped develop these types of structures and leading into reconstruction and you know, further into the growth and development of state during the late 19th century and 20th century. Those skills were passed down to their children and uh, they also played a role in the development of many of the buildings that we recognize as being significant across our state today. In 2013, a group of concerned citizens organized a campaign called Save Great Oaks. In 2019, they secured a grant from the Florida Division of Historical Resources to acquire the property. 2018's Hurricane Michael caused extensive damage and further deterioration to Great Oaks, but structural repairs are in progress. Ennis Davis hopes that inclusion on the 11 to save list will bring attention to Great Oaks, not only because of its beautiful architecture and its agricultural history, but also to remember the enslaved people who built it. One of the reasons that we nominate this site this year to the 11 to save list is to bring awareness uh, to that particular situation, as well as to share this uh, unique historic story of this plantation that really shows is a little microcosm of how Florida developed over the years. For me, it's even personal because my ancestors are some of the ancestors in my family who came down into Florida during the 1830s and 1840s and would have been in this particular middle Florida area and were enslaved on these types of plantations. And, you know, if it wasn't for their hard work and sacrifice, my generation today, uh, you know, would not be here and would not be able to press forward and also play a role in the development and uh, even the preservation and history telling of Florida. To learn more about the Florida Trust for Historic Preservation and the 11 to Save list, go to floridatrust.org. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Holly Baker, Public History Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. You can always find us at myfloridahistory.org and on Facebook. 
Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Holly Baker and Connie Lester. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org.